The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersom and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the band Real Life and their worldwide smash hit, Send Me an Angel. Our special guest is real life singer and guitarist, David Sterry. When the synth pop of New Wave took off in Australia in the early 1980s, Melbourne band Real Life was at the forefront of this emerging genre. Alongside fellow local bands such as Pseudo Echo, they flew the flag for the new romantics. Real Life's vocalist and guitarist David Sterry had already had a brief taste of what life was like in a successful band when he was recruited to join the eccentric vocalist Jeff Duff in the newly reformed group Kush. Real Life's keyboard player Richard Zatorsky was also in this later version of Kush. Yeah, it certainly was, but I need to sort of make this clear. It was a that was a reformation of Kush that only lasted about three months. So I never there was no big music I contributed. They just on a they were just doing a, a reformation tour, and I was the guitar player that that got the gig. Uh, but they, you know, I was considerably younger than those guys at the time, and uh, just to see how they uh, carried on their professional. Uh, music lives was very a big eye opener, and I learned I did learn a lot from them. They were a great bunch of guys, and I was like a kid in a candy shop playing playing uh, with Jeff Duff. It was great. The big brassy sound of Kush saw them become fan favourites, with Duff always ensuring they stood out playing at festivals like Sunbury. Here's part of one of their singles, the Banana Song. But I'm not a man, 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 I
The androgynous Jeff Duff is one of the most charismatic Australians to ever stand behind a microphone. A contemporary of the legendary David Bowie, Duff, or as his alter ego Duffo, has had a long and successful career spanning four decades. Often reveling in his ability to shock crowds, Jeff's oddball theatrical bent and stage presence places him in a league of his own. Here's one of the more commercial sounding songs, Give Me Back My Brain. This song was recorded in England in 1979 and reached the lower end of the UK charts. Duffo even appeared on top of the pops performing the song. Give me back my brain Give me back my brain Give me back my brain I came and stole me yesterday I took me hope and fears away All that's left is a brainless head I'm only just alive But I'm still not dead So now I've got it's not Andy Warhol, but it's a bit of a blast. So give me back my brain. Give me back my brain. Go on. Give me back my brain. Give me back my brain. So now I've got to wear this mask. It's not only Duffo, it's a bit of a blast. Real life made a conscious effort to stand out from the crowd. Oh, absolutely. That, that was always the thing, though. Back in sort of those days, apart from people like Jeff Duff and Skyhooks, a lot of Aussie bands were just getting on in their jeans and their T-shirts, and they looked exactly like the audience. And I'd be going to see uh, English and American bands that came out, and they were putting on a show. And to me, the theatrical side of it is just so important, is as important as the music to a certain extent. Uh, so, yeah, I really wanted to get into that that side of things. It had to be a whole package of entertainment for me. It was the era of pub rock and the suck more piss mantra reigned supreme. The new wave look of real life brought them instant detractors from the harder rocking crowds. However, plenty of haters were converted once they saw the band perform live. Absolutely. Yeah, we we pretty much did win people over. You know, I remember, I remember having to go out in um, a little hotel in Geelong to open for Rose Tattoo and I thought, oh, my God, you look out there and there's, you know, you know, a couple of hundred angry bikies just with their arms crossed look at you and you go, oh, God, who, who booked us into this gig? Um, but, you know, we never got hurt. We, you know, we're, we're always okay and um, it's surprising. I've, I'm a bit of a heavy metal fan from way back. I grew up on Deep Purple and uh, Cream and Jimi Hendrix and all those things and I remember kind of hiding my face, the singer from uh, Deep Purple, Ian Gillen, was playing a show in Melbourne at a little pub in Melbourne, and I, oh, I'm a big fan. So I went up there, and I was kind of just keeping my head down all night. You know, I thought, oh, these 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 big heavy metal fans will kill me if they realise who I am. And then halfway through the gig, this big tall guy turns around and pokes me in the shoulder and says, oh, "I really like your music." <laughs> so 
you know, we all we all have broad, we all have broad tastes, don't we? I mean, you can't live in the same music all the time. Touring on the pub circuit saw real life supporting legendary Australian bands. Oh, look, the funniest one was playing in a really rough hotel in the western suburbs suburbs of Melbourne called the Tarmac Hotel, and having to open for Midnight Oil. Now. Uh, Midnight Oil uh, audiences are, are notorious for uh, giving support bands a hard time. So we kind of wandered on and, and we were wearing silly new wave clothes at the time and we got screams of, you know, piss off, get out, you know, bugger off and, you know, waving their arms at us, screaming at us. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay, all right, all right, because I was a bit of a cheeky young man then too. And I was sort of giving it back to them a little bit. and then. Uh, we, we got through that set and went off and we were like, oh, thank God, that's over. And the oils manager came up and said, guys, you got to go out and do another set. We like that. <laughs> so out we went again and we, they were screaming at us and wanting to kill us and we just went, no, 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 and just played and played. And um, at the end of the set, I said, by the way, we're playing, we have a residency at a little uh, pub called Macy's in South Yarra on Tuesday night. You're all welcome to come along, to which we got, ah, piss off, piss off. And uh, uh, lo and behold, you know, next Tuesday at Macy's, there's all those guys from the Midnight All gig going, you know, and I said, what the hell? You wanted to kill me last week. And they said, oh, we kind of liked you. And um, we heard that there were girls. Girls go to see new wave bands. You know, you look out at a Midnight Oil gig or a Rose Tattoo gig and there's nothing like 2,000 drunk blokes. (laughs) So they, they said, no, no, we actually love you guys. That's funny. One of the distinct sounds that made New Wave was a synthesizer. In Australia, real life was at the forefront of developing synth pop. Yeah, the sounds were exciting. You know, people just, you know, hadn't heard anything like that before. There was a whole lot of new um, paint brushes and palettes for people to use. The price of things started coming down. Uh, then we started getting into samples. You know, we got the uh, the Fairlight. Uh, then the, the, we, had, we couldn't afford a Fairlight. We had an emulator. Uh, and it was just very exciting being able to make your own sounds using a smashing a car door to make a drum sound or uh, breaking a window to make a snare sound. It was just experimental fun. It was very, very exciting and, and very creative, you know, and a whole lot more uh, went into it that I think people believe. People believe that you perhaps turned on a computer and it all happened, but you had to sort of fight your way to get any kind of sound uh, that was worth recording. And it was just a great, a great time to be around. Along with a synthesizer, new wave bands also featured electronic drum kits, and real-life drummer Danny Simic played one of these newly invented instruments. Initially, these drums had their downside for those sitting behind the kit bashing away. Oh, he was right into the electric, electric drum kits, uh, the Simmons kit. Um, the only thing with those, back in the early days, um, they had really, when you hit them, it wasn't like hitting a drumstick, you were hitting like a piece of latex, a hard latex like a kitchen bench top or something. And all the drummers were hitting, the, were hitting them really hard and getting stress fractures in their wrists. So, you know, finally Simmons came out with some, some rubber coating to put on the pads. But no, um, Danny's always been highly regarded by anyone else. You know, the rock bands that, that didn't perhaps didn't like us would always like his drumming, whether he was playing a Simmons kit or not. So we didn't, even get, we didn't get the Simmons kit until Semi and Angel came along anyway. But uh, before that, he'd sort of... Uh, he had respect from pretty much anyone that he played in front of. He's a very good drummer. Real-life songwriters David and Richard Satorsky didn't write side-by-side, side, but it was a writing method that saw them strike gold when they wrote Send Me an Angel. 
We wrote separately always. You know, I've, I've never been able to actually really sit down with someone and, and exchange ideas. I like to hear something from somebody and I go, oh, that's good. And then I want to take it back to my little corner at home um, just by myself and, and, and work on it from there. We never, ever wrote sitting in a room together or in a studio together. Um, Richard gave me a cassette uh, to put into my Sony Walkman on the way down to a gig and, uh, you know, I was sitting in the back of the car going, oh, wow, you know, this is this is just so good. And I think I might have um, – we're on our way to uh, Phillip Island for a show and I think I may have come up with the this, the title there. I, I, somehow the word send me an angel popped into my head and I had to wait until I got home the next day um, by myself and then, you know, sat down and took a great big deep breath and thought, you know, I've got to, I've got to come up with stuff here. And, and yeah, it was, it was seriously, it was like 10 minutes after that, the song was, you know, had all the melodies and had all the, the words just seemed to fall out. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was like that. It was, it was great fun. Real Life were gaining a great reputation playing on the live scene, although nothing they had written stood out as a single. That was until they wrote Send Me an Angel. There's nothing romantic at all about it. It really... We were struggling, you know, one, we were one of these hot new wave bands in Melbourne and they're all starting to make their first records and, you know, see what emerged from that. And quite honestly, we had like a, you know, a great show, but nothing was really an obvious crossover hit song. And we were just desperately trying to come up with this uh, one great song that would give us a record deal and, and launch us into that part of our career. And, uh, you know, there's no great story about the behind the lyrics or anything. We were just trying uh, everything we could to come up with a hit song. And, um, you know, Richard uh, wrote that fabulous piece of music near the introduction. Da, 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 da. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, oh, my God, he's done it. You know, and I thought, oh, now it's my turn. What am I going to do? You know, I was, it was a great deal of stress, but it was like any great song and, and, and most songwriters will tell you if something's really good, it's going to happen in seconds. And the whole song was just sort of, wow, it was just, you know, not there one minute and then on the paper in about 10 minutes after that. It was just fantastic. When he presented Richard his contribution to Send Me an Angel, initially Richard wasn't overjoyed at what David had come up with. Um, initially... We were playing a gig at the Grain Store Hotel in King Street when I sort of came by the next day with, the, with it on cassette. I'd done a four-track recording of it with the vocal. And um, uh, Richard wasn't very impressed at first. I don't, I don't think he got it. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd already fallen in love with the song. And uh, we had our sound guy for a lot of those early days was a guy called Ross Fraser who was uh, John Farnham's – went on to be John Farnham's producer – and Ross took an instant liking to it and uh, convinced our manager, Glenn Wheatley, to let us go into a studio and do a demo recording of it. As you did in those days, you sort of went in and used a 24-track to do demos. So we went into Richmond Recorders uh, one night and came out uh, with that the next morning. And I, you know, I had no doubt by then when I was listening to it, you know, we walked into Wheatley's office and put it on and he got it straight away. There was... The bass player from Little River Band came barging into the office and said, that's a hit in America. And uh, it was a hit in my head. It's great when you write a song and, and no one else knows it but you. You know, it's good fun. So, um, yeah, really confident about it. But no one no one thought it was going to be a super worldwide hit. We thought it would get us into the Australian charts finally. 
it might make the top 20 and that would get us started um, on our recording career. One of the signature sounds associated with Send Me an Angel is the clap used throughout the song. That clap is actually, we regard that as a, a hook in the song, as one of the, the hooks of the song, and that was uh, put there by Ross Fraser. Um, on the demo, he sort of put that bit in there. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a bit of a signature. You know, I've been playing, in the last 12 months, I've been playing all over the world and people put their hands up and clap. You know, I've done uh, two tours of Germany and a tour of the Philippines and um, a big American tour uh, last year, and they all know the clap. It's famous clap. <laughs> Send me an David's guitar solo in Send Me an Angel has seen him undertake a personal journey to recreate its distinctive sound. Well, there's a funny story uh, behind that guitar solo, actually. Uh, what had happened was we went into the demo studio, Richmond Recorders, to put it down, and I knew you know, we were going to put a guitar solo in. I'm not the greatest guitar player in the world. I'm really not. Um, and we, weren't, we weren't, hadn't, didn't have a lot of studio experience, um, so I went out to the studio part and sat on the guitar amp and turned it up and had the headphones half on. I wasn't sure how I was going to hear what I was doing. I didn't know what the chords were because I'd only written the words at that time. And um, sat there and, and said, okay, run it by me, run the part behind, by me and, and let me get a level and uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll start working on it. So um, they ran ran the thing and I was messing around with the guitar and the knob, the volumes and things. and um, then I said, okay, I think I've got, I think I can hear myself now. Tell me what the chords are and I'll work something out. And I looked into the studio to see both Richard and Ross Fraser shaking their heads at me, going, no, 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 just come in and listen to what you just did. And um, it was, it was, it was a fantastic solo. I don't know how the hell I did it. I didn't know what the chords were. And, um, and then when it came to recording the real thing, like nowadays you would just sample that guitar solo and put it onto the, the, the new master track, but I had to try to recreate it and I never, ever, ever could. And um, anybody sort of who knows me and knows about that, the song always laughs. They always come to the side of the stage when I've got to get, get through that bloody solo. And I, I swear I still can't get it as good as the first one. Apart from Triple J in the community stations, Australian bands often struggle to gain mainstream radio airplay. Thankfully for real life, people power won out in the end. Uh, instantly we got instant rejection because radio wasn't that happy about all this new wave stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't proper music to them. They were still wearing their flared pants. And I think the, uh, the major station at the time in Melbourne was a, a mono station, 3XY. This is just before the FM stations really kicked in. So 3XY, the main uh, pop music station, and uh, it was actually got to number two on their charts before they would play it. Um, now, they used to have a thing called Top 8 at 8 that a lot of bands would go, oh, yeah, we're on Top 8 at 8, and you get all your friends to ring up and vote for your song. So we're always number one on Top 8 at 8, but uh, it was actually number two in the charts before they really actually added it to their playlist. So that was very frustrating, hard lesson to learn. The Los Angeles Angels baseball team are one of the high-profile teams in the American Major League. The ball club has adopted Send Me an Angel as one of their team songs, and at each home game, the song blasts out around the 70,000-seat Angels Stadium. It's fair to say that Real Life's hit tune holds a special place in the hearts of Angels fans. We had a day off, 
and our publicist says, oh, we're going to take you down to uh, Anaheim because we're going to take you to San Diego Zoo because they've got uh, koala bears there and we're going to take you to see the Angels uh, baseball team. We went, oh, no, it's our day off. It had been a long, long time on the tour. And uh, we finally got to the the Anaheim Stadium and you have those, uh, you have like beer in these milkshake containers, huge beers, and you have a hot dog. And uh, we're up in the high part of the stands and uh, all of a sudden they hit a home run or whatever they do. And Semyon Angel comes blaring out of the, the PA and people start cheering and there's a big sign, neon sign goes up, LA Angels, welcome real life to the stadium. And it was like, wow, all of a sudden we like uh, baseball. So, yeah, it was fun. Another, 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 another very humbling moment. You know? It's a huge achievement for any Australian band to have a song make the American Billboard charts. Semi and Angel made the US Hot 100 when it first charted in 1983, reaching number 21. It also charted all over Europe, including going to number one in Germany. David is humbled by the international success Real Life have achieved in America. The band have also maintained a huge fan base throughout Europe and Asia. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, and that was. It was really strange. I mean, it's really um, uh, being a boy from Footscray in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, that all of a sudden you've got this hit record to these American. You've grown up with American music and English music, and uh, or or in Germany, you know, this is like um, you know a few years after that major world war that they had over there, and all of a sudden the people who are trying to kill your dad are buying your record. Or the people whose parents were trying to kill your dad are buying your record. So it was all very, very humbling um, and very nice. I mean, uh, to this day, people are so complimentary about um, our music and uh, it's a beautiful thing. I'm very happy about it. Real Life toured America with the legendary UK duo, The Eurythmics. Well, they, they I think they were on about their um, second hit album, actually. So we weren't playing... Uh, the biggest venues in the world. And we, we'd already had Catch Me on Falling and Semi and Angel were already had been hits in America too. So it wasn't a bad, you know, Eurythmix had far many more hits, great songs than we did, but it wasn't a bad double. And uh, a lot of people came because there was real life as well. And the venues we were playing uh, were pretty much not huge stadiums. They were about the size of the Palais Theatre in Melbourne or the Theberton in Adelaide or... Um, you know, and just a, a nice theatre kind of place more than a, a, a tennis centre or something. But there was there was a great tour. There was thirty something shows, thirty two shows, I think. Getting, but it was a a great tour. It was a great fun tour. Yeah. The song then had a rebirth with a remix becoming a worldwide hit all over again in 1989. The remix went to number one on the US dance charts, as well as reaching number 26 on the mainstream Billboard charts. The rebirth was. There was a lot of songs being re- remixed at that time that had been hits previously. And I don't know, they weren't necessarily being hits, but one of my favorite ones is, of course, again, uh, Blue Monday. That it was a, a remix in about 1987, I think. Um, and I just passingly mentioned to um, one of our record company people, I said, Oh, that new Blue Monday mix sounds great. I wish we could have a new Send Me an Angel remix. And I'd obviously sowed a seed in the guy's head and uh, they went to an English producer called Nigel Wright who uh, did the remix and lo and behold, it was just so well received once again. It was uh, a, a real surprise. It was almost embarrassing because um, we, we were just finishing 
an album called Lifetime that had a, another killer song on it called God Tonight, which is just one of my favourite tracks that I've ever written. Thought, oh no, everyone is expecting a new record from us and it's going to be a good record. And here we go with Send Me an Angel again. So I wasn't so sure how it was going to go. I mean, it's, um, it's a, a historical occurrence as well that that just doesn't happen in the American charts and it did. And um, so, yeah, um, I can't complain, can I? I really can't. <laughs> There's a funny video on Facebook of David in a taxi in Germany when Send Me an Angel comes on the radio. He has been lucky enough to hear their song in some weird and wonderful places. Oh, that, that was so funny, you know. It was in, that was February this year. I was there in February just before, you know, before the lockdown started happening. We were playing. That was in Berlin, and I had this strange feeling. It was about about one of the only days the sunshine. It was it was miserable and cold over there, but it was this sunny day in Berlin, and I'd just been downtown and had some lunch, and I got in the cab, and. Uh, you know, they were, they were playing some 80s music and I just knew that it was going to be the next song that came on as soon as we pulled up at the hotel and I just couldn't help myself. I was sort of – I'm trying to tell the taxi driver that that's me and he probably looked around and go, oh, yeah, sure. And uh, so I'm singing it at the top. What you don't hear is me singing it at the top of my voice and I think he finally realised that it actually is me singing it and uh, it was really a surreal moment. One of those things you just – it's like when you hear yourself in the supermarket, you just start pinching yourself. It's hilarious. You never get tired of that silliness. I find it really grounding because um, I, um, I didn't do very well at school and I was going to be going nowhere. And, um, and well, just last year, last, um, last September, we, we actually got to play on one of the, sh- the tours I was on, uh, played the Greek theatre, the famous Greek theatre in, um, in Hollywood. And I had those Footscray moments. I go, you know, well, all those people who said you weren't going anywhere and, you know, it's it's very humbling. It's just a really nice thing going out going, ha, 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 look what I did. I'm at the Greek Theatre. Ah, fabulous. The backup singer is Lisa Edwards, who would later go on to be part of John Farnham's band and also a solo performer in her own right. Semi and Angel has featured in dozens of TV and film soundtracks, and the song even makes an appearance on the 2013 edition of the video game Grand Theft Auto. Real Life's lineup when they recorded Semi and Angel was David Sterry, lead vocals and guitar, Richard Zatorski, keyboard and violin, 
drummer Denny Simic, and Alan Johnson on bass. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Send Me an Angel by Real Life. Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. 
Thanks to David for your time, and thanks to Real Life for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! Take it.